Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you all. Especially nice to see some of the people who were on the retreat uh, this last weekend. We, it's always a deeper level of intimacy when I see them on Tuesday night when I can associate having seen them and been with them on the retreat. So that's especially... So uh, tonight we're often running uh, on this theme of dependent origination, one of the central and perhaps the central core teaching around in which, which all Buddhism has unfolded. Uh, because of that, it has a, a lot of a lot of, of um, commentary associated with it over the years, <clears throat> and uh, I'm not given too much to. Uh, investing in the commentary. I'm much more interested in going to the words and having the direction sort of pointed out and then self-discovery after that. <clears throat> and I think uh, it, it's a kind of refreshing quality that each of us feel as we discover the truth of these teachings for ourselves. It always feels like you're the first person to ever see it. Uh, insight has that. Uh, it always, wow. Where have I and everyone else been? <laughs> Even though centuries have the same insight for centuries, it always feels that way. So uh, I always like taking on um, a subject, and this particular subject I've had a long history with because when I was a monk, uh, I asked a friend of mine to write down the 12 links of dependent origination, and I spent most of of the three out of the four years I was a monk, uh, really looking at the experience of these 12 links as they unfolded. Not sequentially, and I think we make a mistake in thinking that there is a sequential reference here that's essential. It's not. It's as if uh, it requires all of the 11 links to bring about the 12th one, and or all 11 links to bring about the 7th one. It's much more like the conditions what it takes, uh, that it takes for snow to occur. Uh, you not only have to have a certain temperature and a certain humidity and a certain barometric pressure and weather patterns and all of that, and then snow happens. So you could, but I mean, is it, would it be snow? Is it sequentially uh, important for those uh, influencing factors to arise for snow to rise. It's not. All of them have to be there as, and equally assert their influence for snow to be. And so uh, I'm, I'm not so interested in the, the linkage. I think there is a, what I call a proximal link and that's the way the Buddha formulated it. But I think more importantly the, why, the reason he formulated it in this sequence is because it gives us an opportunity uh, to look at each individual part and see the influences it pay, plays upon the entire chain, but also upon the proximal next link. And, uh, and so you can actually examine it. And you can see from that examination that the next link does arise within the influence of that previous one. The previous one sets the climate, you might say, for the arising of the next link. But equally, you could go back three links and see how it influences the eight links forward. And uh, I love that because that's how I did it as a, as a monk. I didn't stay sequential. I would, take, I would take them all out of 
sequence, and then, but, but watch how each of them had their own influence upon that next, that next chain of events. So uh, we're not going to necessarily stay within a sequential rhythm of this thing, but we're going to sort of explore uh, the whole range of influences. <clears throat> now, uh, it's important, uh, I call this talk codependent arising. And uh, what's, what's important is that uh, we stop thinking in terms of isolated things. That's what the point of dependent origination is is that we start thinking, when we look out from our eyes, our perception, we see isolated entities, isolated things that are separate from each other. And the first inroad into seeing uh, the process of life as, mo- as more interdependent upon each other is to begin to see how influence, everything is influenced by everything else. The reasons, what got you to come here required the entire universe to work properly so that you arrived. Each blade of grass had its input. Okay, so you can just start feeling that the the sense of, of, of coexistence, you might say. Uh, and we have talked about that during the last talk about how the different factors uh, play upon uh, a, a certain event occurring, but also the, those factors have other factors, and those other factors have more factors, and it just keeps going out so that there's everything influences everything else. Now, that's one expression of codependent arising or causal determination, but a deeper and more meaningful way that this dependent origination is meant to uh, offset our sense of independent existence is by showing that the very existence of independence itself is causally determined. Not that it's just influenced by other independent things, but that the very existence of independence is determined by causal factors. See? Now, I have to bring in science (laughs) because it's so relevant, it's so exciting to me when those two parallel so closely together. And in quantum mechanics, which I know nothing about (laughs) but love to read, there is a mystery that no one, no scientist has professed to understand, although it certainly is well recognized, and all of quantum mechanics is determined by this fact, that when something remains in an unobserved state, it remains as a wave possibility, as a potentiality. It does not come into its exact form, into its separation, into its identity, until it's observed consciously and then a particle becomes a particle or a wave becomes a wave and then things arise from that determination and that's really what the Buddha is saying here he's not saying that uh, you know that we have influences on each other we know that it's, that's so easily seen he's saying that the actual existence of us is determined 
by causal factors. In other words, we remain a wave possibility. Isn't that... <laughs> you could get a little excited with me here if you wanted. <laughs> so uh, this, um, th this, this is really at the heart. I mean, as he expresses it, you know, it's, this, this whole thing sets the world and self into motion. So I'm not suggesting that we can see from the wave possibility right away, but that we can begin to sense how this thing is put together and through these causal influences and begin to see the functionality of what we claim to be an isolated instant, in, uh, entity is not isolated at all in any way or any possibility. And by studying each of these links, you begin to see the, the separate floors on which the sense of self and the world, because it's all things, not just me, on which this is built. Uh, and of course, when we build it according to this um, blueprint and structure, which uh, is a conditioned phenomena, uh, we experience ourselves as separate. And it's the experience of ourself as separate that begins the process of our struggles and conflicts as separate beings. And that turns us around. There's a reason for pain. pain. Without pain, there would be no reason to turn back around and to observe what we really are and not just hold on to the fact of our sense of being an entity. So with sufficient pain and the maturation of that pain and going through perhaps uh, years, centuries of this pain, we begin to, oh, wait a second here, let me, let me look at this process called me. Let me turn this thing back around. Let me look and see whether what this pain is arising from. What's the cause of this pain? And so this dependent origination stirs the origin of observation around, uh, the, towards the reason we struggle. We st it's, a, it's the fact of why we look at all, why we even want to see. And uh, the, the other thing that's extraordinarily important in uh, beginning to uh, see this linkage set is that we, you realize there are no accidents in the world. There's no outlier. There's nothing, there's no chance here. There's no coincidence. We, those are names we give it because when two isolated entities happen to meet somewhere in the North Pole and they knew each other in Ohio, Wow, what a coincidence, right? But in fact, there are no coincidences. Nothing is out of place here at all, or could ever be out of place. There are no mistakes whatsoever. And that has a tremendous, I mean, if you really take that in, you really understand what that, that has a, an impact on our explanations, but more importantly, on our fault finding and our sense of, you know, why is this happening to me? The, the bitterness we show to life when the occurrences are all 
completely orderly in that sense. And of course, uh, it, the, these processes, these links, uh, show us how we form a personal narrative uh, within ourselves, and that sense of narration begins to foster an ever-increasing distance between ourselves and whatever we're seeing. And that the more we chatter ourselves away from other objects, the further astray we become from those other objects, the more tension is associated with that distance. And the more tension associated with that distance, the more we suffer, of course, but the further we are from our true home that lies within the sacred formlessness of life all being together. So this is all within this particular teaching of the Buddha and it's an extraordinary uh, form. Now, uh, the other very important point I want to stress before we uh, get into the actual links is that uh, because I was trained uh, in retreats and in solitude and monastic settings, uh, it was, I was led to believe, falsely, that I had to develop a certain subtlety of concentration in order for these links to be observed and in order for these links to be broken or to be arrested. And that the true, or and this was what was said to me as I was learning my way through, that uh, if you insert your attention within one of these linkages, you can arrest the rest of the formation. Uh, so a couple of things here. One is that uh, I have found since then that that's not uh, the purest form of, of, uh, of release from this formation. And also the, the sense that we have to have refined our concentration to such a degree that we can see at this almost molecular level in order to free ourselves from it, is also false. So I think uh, that as we uh, begin to move in this, it's not a call for us to go uh, off into some isolated conditions where we can see at the level of subtlety that this is pointing. This, of course, has levels of subtlety to it. But let me just remind people that awareness is not an internal experience, nor is it an external experience. It covers both seamlessly. And when we pull our awareness internally and separate ourselves externally from its natural undividedness, the sense of self is forming within that pointing because we are separating ourselves off from where, what the, the, the wholeness of the undividedness of awareness. And when people do that and they go into themselves in samadhi, they have samadhi experiences with themselves as sort of the driver of those experiences. And those samadhi experiences can look, can impersonate freedom but they're only one-sided. They're not the full story. And the sense of self has gone, followed that samadhi experience 
because it can't help. It's already formed. In the sense of moving in one direction and not the other, you are going to be formed. And so from that, you might say that the dependent origination is already completed. It's done. And from that sense of being done, we then try to apply the remedy of being undone. When the remedy of being undone is just seeing, just seeing. Because just seeing is not divided. It's not an internal experience. So if I'm willing to see, I don't have to insert myself. When I'm inserting myself into a linkage, I'm done. It's already over, as I mentioned last week. It's not about stopping at feeling so that feeling doesn't move to desiring and desiring doesn't move to grasping and grasping doesn't move to becoming and becoming doesn't move. It doesn't, it's not like that. It's not you know, uncoupling the train. What we do is just see. We just see. And all of this seeing, what it does is divest us from believing that the self is a solid thing. That's what the seeing does. That's what this whole thing is supposed to do. It's not some magical formula uh, for ending one's suffering. It's a magical formula for seeing that you aren't what you thought you were. Therefore, you divest from form, the energy you were investing in form, you divest. You're not that interested in your self as a separate person any longer because you've seen that was that's just a function of codependent arising and so there's this relaxation of energy when there is a relaxation of energy the formlessness arises you see it's not i have to stop it arrest it all and then the formlessness will arise after no there's too much me in there that's not how this whole thing works And it doesn't have to be at the subtlety of my focus, laser-like introspection and samadhi. It doesn't have to be at that level. All of us can feel ourselves in desire. In fact, one of the ways, one of the linkages of becoming is when you are fully in your narrative. If you go there, you can sense how formed you are by the thoughts you're having. And you get sick of them. If you observe your thoughts, you'll see that you just, there's nothing you can do about them. You don't try to eliminate them. You're not trying to stop them so that the next link doesn't go on. You simply get tired of them. And you don't put any more, uh, you don't empower them anymore. And therefore they, f- they lose their influence. And when they lose their influence, so does the whole chain of dependent origination. So there are uh, more gross ways to enter this same process that has the same result. It frees seeing up from identifying with form. That's all it's ever meant to do. There's nothing secret about this. Asking other questions in other traditions like who am I does exactly the same thing. This was just the Buddha's way he saw. He was a, an ascetic monk. He had practiced all these concentration techniques. This was available to him to see at this level of subtlety. 
And so he taught from that level of subtlety. Doesn't mean that that's the only way to complete this journey. And I, I say that because I don't want people to get discouraged because you don't have access to that, li that life. It's not needed. And many people throw away the opportunity they do have, which is the life in front of them, feeling the pain of the life in front of you and seeing how thought is associated with the difficulties and struggles I have. You throw away that opportunity thinking that you have to, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you might as well give up. So this sense of seeing, it's not interfering. That's not what seeing does. Seeing doesn't interfere and, and break something apart, break the chain apart, stop the chain. You know, it's not like that. It doesn't, doesn't do that. When you aren't identified with the processes of becoming any longer, then it's just like thought. They may well continue, but you, the sense of you, is no longer invested in that process. And it stops working because you've seen it. And it only needs your invested energy to continue to go. But when you have no energy in it, it stops on its own. There was no willpower or force of effort that created or made that occur. This journey works only through understanding. We, we move forward by understanding where we are. If there's any resistance to where we are and we try to move forward, then that resistance will follow us into the next lockstep place that we locate. If we understand sufficiently where we are and we have no invested interest in those circumstances, then we can stand free of being in that place con and contained and trapped within that place. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to... Uh, read uh, this linkage and then we're going to talk about very briefly we're going to talk about each of these links if we have time uh, and if we don't we'll do it the next time so uh, here's the linkage system with ignorance as a causal condition there are volitional formations with volitional formations as a causal condition there is the rising of consciousness with consciousness as a condition, there is a rising of body and mind. With body and mind as a condition, there is a rising of the six sense doors. With the six sense doors as a condition, there is a rising of contact. When contact is a condition, there is a rising of feeling. When feeling is a condition, there is a rising of craving. With craving as a condition, there is a rising of clinging. With clinging as a condition, there is a rising of becoming. With becoming as a condition, there is birth. And with birth, there will be death and aging and back to ignorance. So you could see it as a circular pattern. Okay, you weren't supposed to memorize all of that. <laughs> I want to just introduce you to those words because we'll be now working with those words for, for some time. And I think, there, uh, I think it's, a, a, it's important to kind of get a feeling for this chain and to see if this chain does have something to say about our life, as I've mentioned before. So, let's take the first one. And I have this out of order, which is not so good. 
somebody steal one of my sheets? <laughs> oh. Oh, my. Oh. Okay, so let's talk about ignorance. It's interesting, uh, the sequence starts with ignorance. And ignorance is just, it's not calling you a name. You're not dumb and stupid. Yeah. Ignorance is not used in that, uh, with that uh, meaning. It's missing. It's, you're missing something. You're not looking. It's, it's non, not being observed. And sometimes that's deliberate in the sense of uh, denial and just, uh, you know, the fear of seeing. I'm just not going to look. Uh, there's this, there's can be that, but also there can just be a, we're so entrapped within our conditioned life that that conditioning doesn't offer us an opportunity to see outside of its step-by-step procedure. So in that sense, ignorance is, is just being entrapped within our own conditioned state and not having the wherewithal to understand how to look and observe that conditioning from any vantage point so we just partake in it, we just follow. It's dominoes, you see? I mean, in to see what the next domino is that's going to fall, you have to have a kind of aerial view of those dominoes. And that doesn't, ignorance doesn't provide any view whatsoever. It just provides that sequencing. And so uh, in Pali, it's called a vija. Uh, it's ignoring the utterance. Ignore the utterance. Ignorance. Ignoring the utterance. And uh, it's, it's um, uh, pretty pervasive, I would say, <laughs> not only in those around us, but in the culture at large and in our life. And you, you can just see how much you miss during the day or how unwilling we are to look at what's really occurring because some of us are afraid to see the implications of what's are occurring. It may mean that we would have to change our life. And so we just simply refuse to look. Uh, and I, I have a, a friend who uh, is an airline pilot, and he, uh, he and I were talking about global warming, which has a direct impact upon his profession. And I said, you know, at some point, airplanes are not going to be able to fly like they do now. He's so, no, that's, you're, you're confusing global warming with just the normal uh, sine waves of, of climate over centuries, over eons. I said, no, I'm not confusing that at all. <laughs> it's proportional to the amount of CO2 in the environment, the temperature rises. Those two are parallel lines with one another. Has, and he says, oh, no, that's not the, that's not the way this is going. I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you were at a roulette table and uh, you uh, were betting your children and your children's lives uh, and you were betting for that fact, just what you said, that it was just a normal fluctuation of climate over time and not human-caused, but you're betting your children's life, remember, would you put all your chips on, on that? And he said, oh, definitely, definitely. And I thought, well... I just created a scenario for him that he, in which he became more entrenched, <laughs> not less. It wasn't skillful. On me. <laughs> because when you pile up what's 
you know, what the, what the implications are, you become more entrenched in your view, don't you? You become more blinded. You become more, less willing to see at all. And, uh, or less willing to even look because now even that's resting on it. And, you be, and so uh, I, just, I thought maybe we're going about this climate change in the wrong way. Maybe we need you know, to, to evoke a discussion that doesn't have quite the, uh, you know, the, the gun-cocked approach that we often use in this one. So ignorance needs to be, it needs to have an environment in which there's an encouragement to explore so people can grow out of their ignorance, not be forced. You can't force somebody out of their ignorance because they'll just become more entrenched within their ignorance if they feel that pressure on them. But if you create an environment for someone to begin to see the actual reality, then they'll come out of their shell. They'll be invited to grow at their own pace as opposed to the forced growth that you're trying to exert. And so I just, I, I just want us to understand that what we're trying to do here is to create a friendly environment for us to each see our own predicaments. And that's going to end ignorance. But if you feel compelled or pushed or hammered or, or under some kind of scrutiny... If somebody's weighing in and judging you or having some or placing some pressure upon you're not going to you're not going to put your you're not going to put your uh, your head out of the shell it's going to go back in further so we we need to understand the environment in which ignorance can be encouraged and seen and understood and not very many of us understand that environment uh, so it sets the groundwork for the work we have to do. The problem that most of us have within our ignorance is that we're so self-berating and we're so self, we have so much shame and so much um, self-criticism that we don't create that space for clear examination, for the willingness to look. We aren't inviting ourselves out. It's not a friendly environment out there. And, and so we don't look. We don't look. We're afraid of what we see will implicate us even more into the treachery of what we call ourselves. So we just as soon stay in our shell. So uh, this is uh, something else has to occur here for us to, you know, start forming a friendly dialogue of encouraging interest. When you're interested, that that is the condition. That's the condition for the elimination of of uh, ignorance. The willingness to be interested in it. Right? So what does it take to be interested? Then that requires you to explore that. But you can see that each exploration has a kind of excitement with it. It has a sort of newness. It has a potentiality. It has an aliveness that it should have. And all of that creative and spontaneous quality of our minds coming together in an interested way is what dispels ignorance. So uh, when we first see something, we don't have any opinion about it at all. We just look at it and it's just not known to us because we've never seen it before. Then, of course, we start having a conditioned reference to what we see. We see it in context to other situations or in context to other things. 
we, a feeling arises that we either like it or not or don't care about it, we begin to have a dialogue that we have about it in memory. And then the next time we see it, out comes the memory of that last time we saw it, and that last, and it's held within the context of that former seeing. Now we're on the next link. The next link are what's called conditioned tendencies, or san, sankaras in Pali, sanskaras in Sanskrit, and which when we are looking, all we're seeing is our past relationships with what we've seen. It's the conditioned tendency that what we, how we see, how we view, how we perceive is held within the memory of our former relationships with that thing, right? So you see somebody you don't like, 20 years has passed, they probably are not the same person, you certainly aren't, you see them and you still don't like them, right? Why is that? It's because we won't let them out of the sanskaras that we have placed them in. The momentum to hold them to what we have known them to be. Now look out with your eyes and see if there's anything new that you see at all. We're seeing sanskarily, and that's not a word. We're seen under the influences of what we have known life to be. That's, what we, that's how we see. That's why we know what we see. You see? And that's... It has a function. You need to know what you see so that you can provide a safe passage through what you see and use in the functionality of what you see. So it's not useless, it's not, there's nothing wrong there. It's just that that's, when it's unconscious, we have no other way of seeing except the way that we see covered in sanskar. You see that? So it's, mostly we're seeing not from awareness, not from being alert and alive to what we're seeing. When you're alive to what you see, you can see this you can see the filter of what we have known it to be, the sanskara. But you can also see the possibility of that thing being something else other than. I mean, just now bring your attention to bear upon what you see. And relax your eyes so you're not holding a kind of stress to what you see. And that sense of relaxation sees what it sees. It still sees a clock. But it can be more than that. And within that more than that, can arise the creative. So the sanskaras require a climate of ignorance, of not seeing, in order for them to be moved forward. Right? And of course, the other th- component of sanskaras is our own conditioned tendencies inside ourselves that keep coming forth because they have been belabored and reacted to and never understood, never really seen, but just revolted and rebelled against. And so these qualities and patterns within us are also part of the sanskar tendencies we have to behave exactly as we always have behaved when certain other conditions arise that bring forth that behavior. 
Okay? Again, we're unwilling to see it. We, we take pride sometimes in our reactivity because it's how we know ourselves. It gives us a feeling of a base of our history. You know, I've always been a proud person, or whatever you are. You know, I've always gotten angry or righteous when that's occurred. And we take a certain pride in the history of our relationships and our reactivity. And of course, that just hardens the sense of conditioning that the sanskars will have. And they, it's not seeing clearly what they are. It's just infusing more appropriateness into them. It's, uh, it's useful for each of these so that you don't get a sense that these things are laying in wait for us. Sanskars are actually arising also based on conditions. They aren't latent qualities that are back there all the time. I'm, I'm an angry person. Like back there in the repository of my mind live these sanskars and they're just waiting for the right, you know, like food to come out and then they pounce out. That's not the way it is. They are arising from their own set of conditions. Now, the next link, we're moving right through these things, the next link, uh, the next climate that sanskaras create is the climate for consciousness to occur. Now, how do we understand consciousness? First of all, it's not fixed or static. It's not my consciousness. It's being created as all things are being created. And it's just an important realization to, re- to understand that there's nothing static here. Since you have something static and fixed, you have an entity. You have something that you can claim is, is the foundation on which your entity is. And consciousness, more than any form within these 12 links, that's where we can rest and claim ourselves to be. But if you look at consciousness, often we don't really understand what consciousness means because in Buddhist lore and Buddhist tradition, it's used in two ways. It's used in one way. It's used as sort of the the psyche, you know, just sort of the the, the sense of the mind, or the sense of um, of yeah, the mind. And uh, but if you look at what the mind is composed of at any particular moment, it's a hundred billion neurons firing that each carrying a bit of information, and each of these bits of information are forming the conclusions, the, the fabric of how we are looking. The content is part of those hundred billion neurons, but also our interpretation and disposition towards what we see, as well as the background memory associated with what we see. But they're firing all the time. There's no one thing called consciousness that's fixed. It's the firing of a hundred billion things that's creating that that sense of having a consciousness. Now, so there's not you can't call your consciousness the reliable certain static factor that where you can rest. Now, the second way it's used in Buddhism 
is that each sense door has its own consciousness. Which is true, because if you look at it, let's say you're standing by the ocean. Now, each sense door is very much alive within the ocean. You smell, you see, you hear. There's a sense of touch. And if you just focus in on that sense door, you'll see that the way that sense door understands, if you just hold back the, the whole packaging of what you know about the ocean and just go to that sense door, you'll see that the sense door understands only a part of the ocean. It sees it very different than your mind, than the psyche sees it. If you're just there smelling it, don't allow, don't then cover up that smell with, oh, that's the ocean and that's salt water smell. Just the smell of it. The consciousness is limited to just that smell. Now, the greater consciousness puts that piece, that olfactory piece with the visual piece, with the auditory piece, and it then, from all those pieces of separate consciousness, it comes up with the certainty and the definition of the overall consciousness which says, oh, I know what the ocean is. I've been there many times. And we don't see it as being individually represented by a number of different inputs. Or the auditory, just listening. See? It's a very different sense of the ocean that comes through each each of the sense doors. And for consciousness to arise, it is said, at each of those sense doors, there has to be in uh, the sensory apparatus, this ability to hear the ear, there has to be sound and there has to be consciousness for that to be understood. But that consciousness is also just neurons firing. See, so where are we gonna, what, what are we going to claim reference to? And this is where it gets very interesting. You see, it's supposed to be pulling the rug out from under you, not giving you some comfort. It, it's disquieting. This is a disquieting series of linkages. And you go, you know, well, I always thought that that's where I was. Well, look again. And that's not that hard to see. So the climate, the climate of consciousness is set and all the content and all the justification and all the attitudes that come and all of the, uh, the, the interpretation and all the memory comes from the sanskars. That's the climate. That's one of the conditions which leads to the arising of consciousness. So uh, consciousness, we'll do, we'll do one more and then we'll, uh, we'll come back to it next time. Uh, consciousness uh, sets the tone for other conditions to arise within it. It's the proximal condition for what they call in Buddhism nama rupa or naming the form and name we see the world from. 
So once we have the sanskars, because sanskars, you can't see name and form without the memory of what you're seeing. So the sanskars are also a part of that. And you wouldn't be seeing just the name and form of what you have been seeing if you weren't based in ignorance. So we just keep seeing that each of these conditions earlier on that we've talked about set up the conditions for name and form to arise. So what is name and form? Well, color and shape is form. We're not seeing three-dimensionally. We're seeing color and shape. That's what the eye sees. It's not seeing distance. It's seeing color and shape. If you've ever seen a, a well-painted picture, it's on a flat surface, but it looks to be three-dimensional. And so this sense of form is there, and then the name that we call something, the name that we call something from our memory is placed on top of that form. And when the name is placed on top of that form, along with the shape that represents some familiar pattern that I know of, uprise the sanskaras that allow that to be known to us and all our reactivity within that knowing. And that fills consciousness, and then we have a consciousness in which we're reacting or liking or not liking or wanting or whatever it is. Piece by piece, we are put together, people. This is more Legos than... Now you can begin to see where this is going. And the question I would have for you is whether it calls out your heart or whether it encloses your heart. Is it the roulette table that my friend would not bet his ch- you know would bet his children and in which case you're very huddled back down into the recesses of your ignorance and you say oh, I don't no way I want to see this. Or is it calling you out in encouragement and interest to explore, to understand the nature of the world that we create and the sense of I who is creating it? Because those two arise together. They're also conditionally codependent upon one another. And we can start seeing this. We can break the spell of being a forever and established forever because nothing is forever within the play of these conditions. And that sets us free. Because although conditions are not forever, there is something else that is. And when we are invested in conditions, that will be available to us. Okay, enough for the night. Can we sit for a minute or two? As you sit... Let your inward world be flooded with the one quality that is not conditioned, and that's awareness. You can claim ownership. 
You can say my awareness. But it's free. You take the my off and it goes everywhere. It doesn't stay just in you. So feel the breath of air that is your heart. Okay, questions or comments about anything we said? Yes. Right, between disassociating and identifying, right? right? So, so where's the line, she asks, when you say, no, I'm not an angry person, and therefore I'm not responsible for my anger at all, right? Okay, so this is what I call radical accountability. The anger is coming through this organism. And you have to claim some responsibility for seeing that anger. So I feel the Zen master would whack you with a stick right there to get you back in your body so that you're saying, okay, I'll, I'll own my anger, right? It wouldn't let you say, oh, oh, everything is empty and I don't have any responsibility here. That's, a, that's an awful philosophy because I can do anything to anyone and it's never my fault, right? So you have to be very careful that this is not turning into a philosophy. This is turning, this is a realization, not a philosophy. When you realize the anger is there, you take responsibility of it. You don't claim, I'm not here, so there's no one to take responsibility of it, and therefore any implication it has on other people is not my fault, and you don't do that. You take responsibility for it. You don't blame yourself for it. That's going too far. And you don't blame the other person for giving it to you. You, don't, you didn't make me angry. But it's in your system as an organism, and you take full responsibility for it, which means you show up for it completely that you don't let ignorance cover it over. See, the other one, as a philosophy, you're not even aware of it. You don't even care about it because it has nothing to do with who you think you are. You're looking in to the left when it's to the right. It's really avoidance. But when you're fully present to the anger, the anger is understood. That's what it means to be fully accountable to the anger, to fully understand it. Remembering that we fully un- the way we move forward is to fully understand where we are. And that means emotionally where we are, psychically where we are, our whole disposition thoroughly understood. And when it's thoroughly understood, you move forward. And it never turns itself into a philosophy. It's always a wonderment. The next step, if this next step was taken authentically, it turns into greater sense of wonder. Not into a philosophy. Totally getting in the way of me hearing. 
That's actually a really good point. She was saying that, as I was mentioning in this case about the sanskars, that what she previously, or, or the, uh, where it took her mind, kept her from listening to it or seeing it fresh, right? So the, the memory of whatever that activated, it kept filtering uh, out what is new. That's actually be- beautifully insightful because that goes on all the time. Nothing is what we have known it to be, has ever been what we have known it to be. And so we can't access what is new as long as we only know it to be what we've known it to be. As long as the sanskars keep pouring out their information and we just keep buying into that with ignorance, we never see beyond that ignorance. So it requires, it requires okay, wait a second here. Let me relax to this. You're stepping out of a, of a sequenciation. You're stepping out of, you know, this leads to that and my reaction and then this and I'm going to tell that. You're stepping out of that. If, you're, if there's a stepping out, you're stepping out of that. You're stepping out of your conditioning so that you're not just going to follow your conditioning. You're going to, okay, you pause. Now let me look at this thing again. Yes, I see the person that I don't like and what I was going to say to them, but let me see that anew as well. Let me see, right? Let me see them anew as well. And then you give them a chance to be different than what you've known them to be. But if you just hold them to the sanskars, you just can't give them a chance because that's the only thing you know them to be. It's like, uh, you know, you, you... when you haven't seen somebody for a couple of years, you really expect them to be exactly the way they were when you met them two years ago. Because the sanskar hasn't grown, it hasn't, had a, it hasn't had any contact to have grown or moved. So, and it surprises you when they're different. Okay, so you do this pausing, reflecting, returning at every... No, I mean, because that's what I was saying before. You're carrying yourself along with you with that. It's, it, you know, what you want to do is when you're not being conscious, be conscious. That's all you need to do. Just, okay, so wait a second. I'm just getting lost in this. Just let me be aware. Let me let awareness arise here. You don't have to go anywhere for the awareness. You just l- relax sufficiently and let it arise. Now let me see what I'm seeing from awareness and rather than just the patterns that are coming forth from me. But when do you trust your, your, your immediate, quick, natural reaction to something? Never. <laughs> Not if it's a quick, immediate reaction. Your words, I don't know what you're... But a reactive pattern is only caused by what you've known it to be. And so you can't trust the reactive pattern. You trust, you trust intimate. You trust what something is as it is. And let discernment from the awareness itself tell you whether what you should do about it in that moment. Not your former history with something. Right? Okay. So awareness then 
provides the cue as to what action needs to be taken, not your reactive pattern. And awareness comes in as immediately as, it doesn't even come in, it's there. It's not like you have to conjure it up. It sees and understands and action then becomes spontaneous in relationship to it. Not reactive action, but discerning action is a spontaneous action in relationship to the moment as it arises. Does that sound confusing? Let, just let that go and we'll get to it at another, at another time. Okay, so we have to stop. Thank you all very much. We'll have a discussion on what we have talked about today.